for those of you maybe new or watching online, uh, only my children call me dad. Okay, uh, I, a couple things I just want to, I, I just quickly, I want to write, just put a underline under this exciting trip that we're taking to South Africa. And as Kathy said, you're all invited, so if you can get a plane ticket by March 12th, you can join us. Or if you can't, then we truly want you to go with us in prayer, and we do need uh, to raise some money for those that uh, need some help in going this trip. We are building a culture of mission in this church, and one of the ways we build a culture of mission is by going. And we're going to go, and we have a team going. We're going to visit various mission organizations in South Africa. And we want to build relationships and a pathway for our church so that in the future, this church will have within its cultural value system the conviction that we want to go. And, and it's not when, but it's not if, but I, I want to go. I want to go visit. I want to go, I want to go help. And we would get our young people talking about this. It would be part of our conversation as a church. Second thing is this river space is really exciting. And we, need, we really do you need your help. Every aspect of it. We want, we want this entire build out and this entire project to be literally off budget. Which means we're going to do it. We're not going to put it in our budget. Our tithes and offerings are going towards our budget and mission and our staff and our ministries, but we want this to be off budget, which means we need your help. And so this is an opportunity for you to serve because this is your space. It's not just our space. It's just not a place for the staff to meet. It's the river house where we're going to be gathering for morning stuff, evening stuff. This is the first time in the church's 15, 16-year history that we will have a place where we can go and identify. We, it's our stake in the, in the South Bay. This is our place. And we will invite others and we will gather. So thank you for that in advance. And I'm looking around at so many of you that are already committed. Um, one last thing, and then I'm going to jump into First Peter, and that is confession. Confession's really good for the soul. And you often don't hear, you don't often hear me confess, if ever, but yesterday I threw my uh, pickleball racket at the fence and uh, cussed, and I just wanted to let you know that that was inappropriate. First of all, because even though I was playing really bad, come on, it's just pickleball, right? I mean, seriously, why would I get so upset? But I did, and uh, I was really ticked off the way I was playing. But anyway, that's out of the way. Uh, let's jump into First Peter, and here we go. We are looking at a phenomenal letter that was written to the church in, um, in, the, in the first century during the time of great persecution under Emperor Nero. And we are talking about this idea, thriving in the times, thriving in the modern era. How do we as Christians thrive in the modern era? By being born again, accepting our living hope, and living out resurrection life in all sectors of society. And Peter is now going to dive into that, and we're going to read the, a, a very large section of Scripture. I'm actually going to move quickly through some of it and then focus on a few things. Uh, but James last week read the part of this passage, and then he diverted, and um, it, this is like a punch in a patch, right? So phenomenal reading of the text, and then a remarkable sermon 
unrelated to the text. It's amazing that James could do that. It's like boarding an airplane in LAX headed for New York and you end up in Cleveland. I, but James did it, and he made it fun, he made it interesting, and most certainly relevant to the topic of living out a living hope. A full, you, you have to live out your hope as a full person. It's not just part of you. It's not just your spiritual life. It's your whole person. We are whole people, and, and the New Testament and the whole entire Bible teaches us that we are psychosocial, pneumatic, somatic beings. And that's what James introduced us to. And I haven't stopped really actually thinking about it since uh, listening to it online. I was out of town last week, and, and this is what happens. And, and it was a remarkable message about every area. We're psycho. Most certainly we're social. And uh, we're, we're also pneumatic in sense of spiritual. We have a spiritual, soulish perspective. And we're also somatic, pneumatic and somatic, which is body. And every aspect counts in living out our salvation. And he gave us some great ideas about how to uh, incorporate all four of those into your faith. Very, very good. Well worth listening to. We need a, we need a fire on all four cylinders. Now, here's a quick reading of the text. So, Starting in verse 23 of chapter 1, it's amazing we're still in chapter 1, but we're going to move quickly into chapter 2, and by next week we're going to be in chapter 3. It's like a, like a seriously, it's like a, we're on a rubber band, and we're just going to let go, and we're going to move forward. But this is really important stuff, and so we don't want to miss what Peter is telling us as Christians, how to live in the modern world. And so he first begins by saying in verse uh, uh, 23 that we have been born again by a seed which is not perishing, not by a seed which is perishable, but by an imperishable seed, and he's referring to the word of God, the truth of God, the, the written word of God. As Peter is describing, that which came inspired by God through the Holy Spirit, through the writers of the Old and New Testament, Peter is referring to the entire body of material which we call the Bible or the word of God or the scriptures, which consult us, which inform us, which give us our, our knowledge and understanding of life and also the world. And he describes this and says, like grass, that fades away. Its glory is like flowers. It's a beautiful flower, and then it's gone tomorrow. But the word of God endures forever. Therefore, in chapter 2, like newborn babes, what are we supposed to do? We're to long for that word of God. And we are to continue this longing throughout our lives. Then he moves to a second point, and that is found in verse 4 of chapter 2. And coming to him as living stones, which have been rejected by men, but as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, a living stone, you, each one of you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So he's talking about us collectively as living stones, like a stone in a building. You are a living stone in a spiritual building, which is the church, the community of followers. The church is not a building. The church is not a location. The church is us, individuals coming together as community. And then Peter moves into a third area that's really important to our faith, and that is in verse 9. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who has called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. We have a new identity. We are a royal priesthood. We are made up of individuals that have a unique and royal privilege and responsibility. We are called priests. That's who we are. That's our core identity as we are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, not because we're exclusive, not because we're better, not because we are against but because we are the mediators within a society that needs to know and understand what God looks like, and that's our role as priests. Three things Peter mentions of who we are and what we need. And then he now goes into a conversation in verse 11 as aliens and strangers. He reminds us, verse chapter 1, verse 1, we're aliens. Now again in chapter 2, verse 11, again, aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against my, our soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And here's the theme. Here's the idea. Keep your behavior excellent. That's where Peter wants to take us this morning. How do we continue to keep our behavior excellent among the world? Gentiles would be the world. People outside that don't commune with us, that don't they're not part of us, but yet we are called to. See, that's the interesting thing about our faith. We are a people that are chosen, unique, privileged, royal, and yet we're called to those outside of ourselves. That is exactly who we are. And so we are to keep our identity, our identity excellent in all areas. And so we're to abstain from fleshly lust, fleshly desires, epithumia, which is this epi-desire. Any desire that you have that is greater than your ultimate desire. What is your ultimate desire? What is your ultimate craving? What is your ultimate thing that, that, that literally controls or directs your life? Anything that overpowers that is an epithumia, a, a fleshly desire an ultimate desire that is greater than what you have chosen. And we are, to, we, are, we are to abstain from that, show good behavior in all respects so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, which you're not because you have good behavior, but, if, but they're going to slander you anyway. Isn't that interesting? Then he goes on and he says, that they may, because of your good deeds... As they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Uh, it's going to all be reversed. One day it will be reversed. One day what seems to be wrong will become right. Therefore, Peter jumps into this conversation about three areas of our lives, social constructs in which we are to maintain good behavior. And he identifies them here in 2.13. And really it goes all the way down to chapter 3 into verse 8. And I'm just going to briefly talk about the three things you need and the areas in which we are to thrive in. The three things that you need and then these three areas where we need to, do, to apply these principles. And in and, and verse 13, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every institution, whether to a king or one in authority to, or to governors sent by him by the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. 
For such is the will of God that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of the foolish men and act as free men, free individuals, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. And then in verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if you sin and are harshly treated? You endure it with patience. But what if you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it? This finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose just as Christ also suffered, leaving an example for you. So there's something about that. And I think what Peter does is he zeroes in on this idea of going back to chapter 2, verse 11, this idea of, of, of being a good example or being a good person, excellent behavior, by following Christ's example. That's how we do it. And so that's where Peter's going. And he says, Christ suffered and he uttered no threats being entrusting himself to him who judges righteously, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then in chapter 3, he talks about wives being submissive to husbands, even if your husband's a jerk. I mean, seriously. Um, and there's a mutual submission. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, respectful. See, there's a mutual submission here in marriage, but yet what we find is the common theme to be a good example, as Christ was, in government, in work, and in marriage, what are we to do? We're to take on the posture of submission, which is such a loaded word today, isn't it? And yet in verse 8 of chapter 3, to sum up all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil, insult for evil, but giving a blessing instead, for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So how do we do that? Well, I'm going to talk about that just briefly this morning. And I think the focus, the heart of this is about how to be a stand-up Christian in a modern world. And the world is so ever-changing, and it's changing so fast. I'm reading three books right now at the same time. Um, Literally at the same time, like every, not, not at the same time, but you know what I'm saying. And, and they're all on the same subject. I'm reading um, The Coming Wave, which is all about how we manage and control the technological society we're moving into with AI, artificial intelligence. And the premise of the book is it has to be contained in some way. We need to understand how to contain it properly. I'm also reading Kurt Vonnegut, who wrote a book many, many years ago, back in 1955, called The Player Piano, which is, a, which is a look at the future. And the future is the machine is taking over the people. And then there's a reaction to that in this story. And I'm also reading Jacques Ellul, who's a French professor from Paris, Christian man who wrote about society and Christianity in society. And he wrote a 500-page book called... Um, technological society, the technological society, that technique, methods are controlling humanity. And how does the Christian play into all that? We need to understand that. 
We need to become great, good participants in the modern culture in which we live, in every area, and yet do that with excellence. How do we do that? Well, let me just jump right in. Let me just give you um, some ideas to think about, and I'm just going to I'm going to jump right into the material. Um, I was going to tell you a story about Jim Elliott first because this whole premise is based upon the fact that we are aliens. We would not be able to have this discussion until we understand fully that Peter is identifying as aliens. An alien is not out of place. An alien is in, an alien is in the right place at the right time. That's what an alien means. Somebody that has been literally transposed, transposed from a different world into now a new setting with a new purpose, and that new purpose is valuable and important to that society. That's what alien means. I've been studying for weeks, and I think that's kind of my final conclusion on it. Jim Elliott is a perfect example of that. A, a, a young man that went to Wheaton College, married his uh, a, a college sweetheart, Elizabeth Elliott, who's a, a nationally known public speaker, communicator, author. Jim lost his life very early on, just out of college. They moved to South America, feeling God's call to go into the mission field to some an indigent, um, indigenous people groups in South America. Um, and they were not friendly to outsiders. And Jim, in the process, of doing some reconnaissance, lost his life. He was speared to death accidentally. And um, his life was not in vain. It really wasn't because out of it came some of his greatest writings and his wife, of course, carried on the mission and the ministry. And what we recognize in that is that what Jim was trying to do was bring a greater influence. The gospel into a land where the, the gospel had never been heard. They didn't understand the Christian principles of Christ dying for them and understanding how it restores your humanity and brings brotherly kindness and love and compassion and all those things. And so I tell that story because you and I enter into society like Jim Elliott did, crossed over, and we are now placed in our culture for this purpose to bring this understanding of the excellencies of God. Jim Elliott was the one who said, reflecting back on Abraham. Remember Abraham was given the blessing in Genesis 12? And remember when God said to him, I will, I will bless you and you will be a blessing to all the nations? Jim Elliott points out that the blessing of Abraham did not start there. It started when he owned his strangerhood. Very interesting. He owned his strangerhood. He was out of place and yet when he came and owned that out-of-placeness, he found his sense of identity in the security of his ultimate home. And his home came from God. And therefore, he didn't frantically look around for a new home. He had a home. His home was in God. And therefore, he found his stability in the work and what God had called him to do. And I think that's a model for you and I. And I think that's what Peter is saying in this passage. It's a settled unsettledness that pushes us deeper into culture to live stand-up lives. And you need three things. Here they are. You need the word of God, you need a community, and you need a new identity. And that's what Peter says before he gets into these areas of social constructs where we are to be good stewards and good, good examples. So first of all, the word of God. It says in chapter 2 that we are to long for the word of God. We are to long like newborn babes. Why does he give us the example of a newborn babe? Well, let me, let me give you an example. We have six grandchildren. And when our I, fifth, 
Del Finium Theodore Windorf is his name. He's my namesake. And he, uh, our son's son, son and his wife's son, was born. Um, can't remember where he is in the birth order, but uh, he, uh, he, his first day on, on planet Earth was a tough one. He um, came home with his mom, and she was breastfeeding all day and then into the night, and Denise and I went up to help that night, and we stayed the night in their home, and it was, it was a rough night. Just I, I've never heard a kid scream that hard before, and screaming, wailing. You couldn't cuddle him. You couldn't protect him. You couldn't, you couldn't talk sense into the kid. You couldn't do any, this guy. This guy was screaming at the top of his lungs all night. It was really hard to watch. It was really tough. So the next morning, um, Nadine, our daughter-in-law, called the pediatrician, come in, and she wasn't producing milk yet. And so they put little Dell on some supplemental food, uh, nutrition, until her breast milk came in, and everything changed. All that kid wanted was one thing, and all that kid needed was one thing. Hey, buddy. And that one thing is his mother's milk. And that long bore, that longing, that deep longing is exactly what we are to do with the Word of God. And, and that's all he needed. And the question is, what do we crave for? There are lots of things in this world you can crave for. See, that's why Peter puts it in the context of these fleshly lusts or desires and then the former lusts back in chapter 1, verse uh, like verse 15, the former lusts which you were in your ignorance, but now the Holy One has called you out of that to be holy. So there's these desires that we have, but there's one central desire we are to have and we are to maintain it, and that is a desire to be nourished by the Word of God. And whatever it takes, we are to do that. To be nourished by it is to recognize the fact that if we do not eat, we will starve. If we do not eat from the word of God, we will not grow. It comes down to that. I cannot emphasize this enough. In the 30 plus years I've been in ministry, my number one, my number one message over the years has been Helping and encouraging people to get into the Word of God for themselves, to be nursed by the Word of God. And whatever, whether it's a Bible program that you listen to or whether it's your own personal studies, it's not just like milk on Sunday. It has to be a regular diet, and you've got to crave it. You've got to put aside, you've got to long for, you've got to grow. You have to build a taste, Peter says. In fact, taste and see that the Lord is good, the scriptures remind us. This is Ezekiel 3.3. Then he said to me, son of man, eat this scroll I'm giving you and fill your stomach with it. So I ate and it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. The word of God in the scriptures is, is, is often referred to as honey. It's that sweet. It really is because it's the only thing that truly can nourish your soul. Um, Psalm 119 103 and 104, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And what do you crave for? I, I'm reading through, I, I, I'm, I'm doing the, the, the Bible in a year, the Big Red Bee app, and it's, uh, it's Nikki Gumbel from Holy Trinity Brompton, um, England, London. And 
he, is, um, he, he walks you through, and you can listen to it or you can read it. And he gives you an Old Testament passage, a Psalm or Proverbs, and, an, and a, a New Testament passage, and an Old Testament passage. And it's been really fun to, to, to listen to the narrative of the story of the Bible again. And it's been a, I just, I wanted, it's been a while since I've read through the whole thing. And like I'm, I'm, I'm driving in the car the other day and I'm listening to Genesis, the end of Genesis. It's the story of Joseph being sold by his brothers, thrown in a pit, throat, and then he ends up in Egypt and ends up in prison. And then he comes out of prison and he becomes the second, he's the second most powerful person in Egypt, right under the Pharaoh. That's amazing. And then there's a famine in the land and all over the world, and his brothers come to Egypt for food, and they bow down just as his dream said they would. And, and then his father comes, and there's a great reunion. There's not bitterness. There's forgiveness. It's a remarkable story. And I'm like waiting for the next section. I want the next section. And, I'm, and I feel like I'm, I'm, getting, I'm growing in my understanding of the compassion and the way God works and how he works through things and circumstances. There are so many lessons in the Bible, but you got to crave it. you got to get into it. I, I can't overemphasize that. But the second thing you need is, is you need to understand the fact that in verse 4, you're a living stone. It's been rejected by men. But it's choice and precious in the sight of God. And you are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. The idea Peter is describing from the Old Testament is that we are the temple of God. And every stone that built the temple is an individual, you. And as I said before, we're not a building. We're certainly not a location because we can meet anywhere we want in any, any format, any time of the week. We are a people, and every single person represents a stone. A person is a stone that builds and makes the church, and it's all about community. And I think what Peter is saying is that we need one another. They fit together. It's called community. You have a great perspective, but you don't have, always have the right perspective. And sometimes you need somebody else's perspective. And we're a diverse, unique group of people come from different socioeconomic backgrounds from all over. And, and the reason why we come together is because we have one identity, and that is we're priests under Christ. We've been saved by Christ, by his blood. That's what Peter says, and that unifies us. And then we come together as a community, and we need each other. And the reason why the church meets on Sunday every week as best as we can, is because we are the temple. We are, we're the building in the world that represents and manifests the glory of God. And when we come together and worship and we think and we come together and think together and we, we interact together in our grounder groups, what are we doing? We are representing God on the face of this earth and it's the church that does that. And that's why the church will not fail. It will continue on. I was reading Russell Moore, and I'm going to get a little bit more into Russell Moore and losing our religion. But one of the things he points out is some statistics and the falling attendance and what's going on in America and religion in America. And, you know, he's, he's got some predictions, and he's looked at sociologists and all these things that, that one of the predictions is that by 2070, only about 47% of Americans will be claiming to be Christian. That there seems to be a massive decline, and most of the decline is with organized religion. 
for a lot of reasons. But we need to exist, and that's his point in the book, Losing Our Religion. We need a massive reboot, not just a revival to the golden age, whatever that golden age is. What's the golden age of Christianity? Who, who knows? Every golden, yeah, we can look back and say, well, that's the golden age, that's the golden age. It's not a go, going back to a golden age, it's looking forward and saying we need a full reboot. We need a full change of heart. We're coming back to the word. We're coming back to the necessity of community in our lives. And number three, this is amazing in verse nine. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. It's a new identity. And your core identity as a Christian is the fact that you are a royal priest in God's kingdom. We serve at the pleasure of the king on behalf of the king. That's our identity. We're free to do that, and we choose our new, our new purpose as being a priest. What's a priest? A priest is simply a mediator between God and the people, serving on behalf of the Lord through the temple, worshiping the Lord, proclaiming the excellencies of God. And so as we go out in the world, our identity is we are a royal priest, a chosen people, and this should change our perspective as we go into the world. We go out into the world to mediate between people that don't know God and God himself. This changed Denise's life, my wife's life in college. I remember that. I remember this story when she was um, uh, at UCLA and, and uh, we were dating and, and she went off to a mission trip in Japan. And during that time, this passage of scripture really spoke to her and it just came to light and she came home with this new identity. I am a part of the royal priesthood. I have a new purpose in life. It really redirected her whole life. She was headed into the movie industry, casting and all sorts of things. And it just totally redirected. Not that that's bad. We need people in those fields. But what it did is it directed her to, to a greater passion that she had. The true passion, which is for her, was to serve people through not only introducing them to Jesus, but helping them grow in their walk with the Lord. And it changed her. And this identity really got a hold of her, and she saw herself as a daughter of the king, a new identity, and also this, this sense of being chosen, being cared for, a possession, being loved. Let me let that soak over you. That's who you are. That's who you are. See, don't let the evil one steal that identity from you. And therefore, we abstain from fleshly lusts. We move forward into what we consider to be humble submission in all social constructs, government, work, all relationships, and marriage. And these are the four uh, areas of social constructs in the world in which Peter is now identifying. And next week, Taylor is going to come explain how to do that. But I'm just going to give you a couple ideas and a couple thoughts as we close this morning. Because it says, submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every institution. Why would I want to do that if I don't agree with it? Verse 18, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, even if they're jerks. Uh, and then chapter 3 be submissive to your own husbands, and husbands in the same way live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker, as a woman, and show her honor and be 
as a fellow heir with the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Honor her. Raise her up. Honor one another. So how do we do that? How do we honor and show respect and live in a society that we don't agree with? How do we possibly pull that off? Um, just a couple ideas. First of all, you got to understand that you're free. You are free to do this. You are not enslaved to do this. Enslavement, the only time enslavement is used is when we are enslaved to our own desires. And everybody starts off enslaved to their own desires. And when you are enslaved to your own desires, the addictive nature that is within us drives us into literally ultimate destruction. We become prideful, self-centered, arrogant, judgmental. All the things that we see around us that we don't like, but yet oftentimes we act the same way. And yet, we are free only when we release those and find a greater objective and a greater purpose in our lives and a greater sense of bondservantness. So the second thing is you are free, but you are a bondslave of God. You're a bondslave of God. Um, I was going to give you a quote here that I didn't use last week that I think was really helpful by, from Martin Luther. And um, I don't think I have it down here. Oh, it was really good. That's what happens. I went off my notes at the beach, and who knows what happened. But anyway, it was really fantastic. You'll have to look it up. He, didn't say, he doesn't say much, but what he's essentially saying is that we, um, we are free agents. We are free from all people. We are free from all limitations. We are total freedom. We have this total freedom as a Christian, and yet we're also free to be completely connected and submissive as bond slaves in all, in all ways. So it's this unique paradox of being free, yet we put ourselves in a position of being uh, under submission, even when we don't believe that it's going the right direction. Um, you can serve and disagree. It's another point I wrote down. You can serve and disagree. You can serve your boss. You can serve the government. You can help. You can serve your spouse even if you don't disagree, if you disagree. You can voice your opinion. I'll give you an example. I wrote an email to the President of the United States. I've never done that before. I finally did. I'm 62 years old. I finally I figured out how to do it, first of all. It's like, what do you do? Do you write a letter? You don't, I, nobody writes letters anymore. So I went online and researched it and found the White House's email and sent it to the general mailbox. Probably nobody ever read it. That's all right. But I wrote it. And I wanted, respectfully, to challenge the president on something that he said. And I'm not going to tell you what, it was a very, very sensitive moral issue in our, our day and age. Very, very important moral issues. One that we need to grapple with as a church. Not here and now. And therefore, I reserve the right to not speak about it because I, it needs more context. Because I want to show a deep level of respect for all people. For all positions. And yet, I disagreed and I said at the end of it, I told, I told him what I thought, and then I said, I respectfully disagree, Mr. President. 
And I think that's okay. And I think that's our job. I think we need to do that more and more. We need to, we need to stand up for injustice. We need to stand up for honor. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it. I didn't say it the last message, but something that's been really bothering me this last week is what happened in New York. And those four migrants and three other individuals, and I don't know their connection or relationship with the United States. I suspect that some of them are not citizens and some are, but it has really upset me deeply that seven individuals sat there and beat up two police officers, either in Times Square or whether it was um, uh, in front of a, um, a shelter, and they were there to break up a disagreement. And it breaks my heart to see such disrespect. The first time I was ever uh, ticketed, I was 15 years old and I was riding my motorcycle on the street. My father told me not to ride my motorcycle on the street. I had a dirt bike and we grew up on the top of the hill and I had lots of places to ride. And he told me, don't ride on the street. And I rode on the street and I got caught. And the police officer wrote me out the ticket and I went home and I had a court date and my father took me to court and we sat down at this little table in Torrance Courthouse, is 15 years of age. And the judge comes in. As soon as the judge came in, my father looked at me and said, stand up. Just like that. And I stood up at attention as the judge came in. And then the judge identified me as my, with my name and my father and his name. And my dad looked at me and he said, say, yes, your honor. And I said, yes, your honor. And my father at the age of 15 taught me to respect authority. Yes, officer. Yes, judge. And that is something we need to come back to because that is civility in America. And Christians need to stand for civility and respect. Something Mike Johnson said, which I thought was very interesting, Speaker of the House, when he was elected and he was being interviewed. And he said, you know, I have a lot of moral convictions, but not all of them are law. And we have a law on the land, and we, I respect that law. And it may not necessarily be my convictions, but I respect that law. And I thought that was a brilliant statement. Russell Moore, in losing our religion, Bill told me about this book, and he said, read the last chapter. I read it, read it again. Really liked the last chapter, so I decided to read the whole book. And I read the whole book, and essentially what I discovered that uh, what Dr. Moore is doing in this book is that he is identifying the fact that we need a major, major overhaul. And he points to what's going on in America and the Christian church and religion, and he calls it Christian nationalism. And Christian nationalism is when Christianity becomes a politic, and it becomes a weapon. And when you take a position against somebody else, we are not to stand against people, we are to stand for things. And we are to stand for righteousness. We are to stand for love. We are to stand for justice. We are to stand, and we are not to become a, a people, a Christian group that is known by its politics, but by its faith. It doesn't mean you don't have a politic. It means, it means that it's, it's tempered through submission and honor and respect for all people, for the office. Think about it from a boss's perspective. Have you ever been harmed, hurt, railed upon? I was. I remember the time. And, and it looked as though I was at fault and everybody was going to see that. And I was so embarrassed, I wanted to speak out and fire back at this individual. 
And then I read 1 Peter chapter 2. And when Christ suffered, leaving you an example, and I read these words, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Wow. I shut up. And I think we need to stand up and shut up. And stand up and stand for the truth. And if you don't, voice your opinion. Get involved. Stand for the moral issues that you believe in. I'm all for that. But we're going to have diversity. And that's a good thing. And we're going to have differences of opinion. But we are going to be known as people who have excellent behavior because they stand up in all forms, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in the government or whether we're in a marriage and we feel so hurt and yet we're going to be submissive to the Lord because we're bond slaves of God. How about that? That's what Peter calls us to in this passage. Ah, wow. So what's it going to take to live a stand-up life. Come on up, worship team. We are going to close with this thought. It takes the word of God. It takes a biblical community. And it takes a new identity. And next week, we're going to continue this discussion because we got to get into this. we got to really understand the nuts and bolts of our role and how we interact in a culture as aliens. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship the Lord. Can I invite you to stand? God, we do just prepare our hearts before you. This is the song that we're about to sing says, Building My Life. God, we build our hearts, our lives, our trust on you, God. Would you teach us the way? Communion is being passed around. You can take it whenever you're ready as we worship together. Sing this together, worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Jesus, Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever say, worthy of every breath. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. Holy, there is no 
sing this together worthy of every song worthy of every song we could ever sing you are God worthy of all the praise we could ever bring worthy of every breath worthy of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you i live for you jesus jesus the name above jesus the name above every other name the only one who could ever say jesus the only one who could ever say worthy 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 of every breath we could ever breathe we live for you we live for you holy holy there is no one like you there is none beside you open up my eyes in
wanted to mention, if you would like to receive prayer, um, my mom, I know, this is my mom, my dad, I should just call them Denise and Todd when I'm up here. Uh, Denise will be up here and would love to pray with you if you want to just take another minute um, now that the service is over. Taylor's available too if you're a man and you want to pray with a man, um, but it doesn't have to be over for you. You can continue to process or just take a minute to receive prayer. thank you for today thank you for what you're speaking and what you're doing Lord we ask that it wouldn't just be words at a service God but that you would lead us and guide us in this so we love you those of us that need to linger God we give ourselves permission to linger those of us that need to go God we give permission to go most of all God we just give ourselves permission to be exactly who we are in your presence all our needs, all our desires, all our wants. You see it all, and you love it all, and you hold us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, like Brooke said, if you need prayer, we've got some availability. We're just going to keep on playing for a little bit. But bless you guys. We'll see you next week.